You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to The Bloodline with LLS. I'm Elissa. I'm Jesse. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be speaking to Dr. Matthew Davids, an attending physician, director of clinical research, and the associate director of the CLL Center at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. He is also an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Davids has an active translational research program on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. In this program, he leads clinical trials to evaluate novel therapeutic strategies in patients with CLL and other hematologic malignancies. Welcome, Dr. Davids. Thank you so much, Alyssa. It's great to be with you today. Um, I'll just start by noting that the LLS supported my very first grant, and I continue to be funded through LLS today, so I'm very grateful to LLS and to be here today. That's wonderful. How exciting. Well, let's get started by learning a little bit about you. How did you start in the field of medicine and studying leukemia? I was one of the first doctors from my family, so not from a medical family, but I was fascinated initially by the science underlying medicine and also the relationships that doctors have with patients. Oncology was really a natural fit for me because I felt like at the time when I was in medical school that the science was really at the cutting edge. It was actually the time when targeted therapies first came into the clinic. We'd been using chemotherapy for so many years. And actually, Gleevec, the very first targeted therapy in blood cancers, came into the clinic right when I was in medical school. So that was very inspiring that perhaps we could develop these types of targeted therapies for other diseases. And I got very interested in blood cancers specifically because as an oncologist, you can make a huge difference for patients. You really are the primary person helping patients make decisions. I think that is very gratifying to be able to get to know my patients well and understand what their priorities and passions are and then to help make recommendations for what the best possible treatments are. Dr. Davids, since today's episode is focusing on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, also known as CLL, could you please tell our listeners what that is? Sure. So chronic lymphocytic leukemia, three words. So the first word chronic is because this is a chronic disease that patients often live with for many years. Lymphocytic means that it comes from a lymphocyte cell, which is a type of white blood cell that's normally there to help you fight off infections. But the leukemia part means that there's too many of these cells in the blood or in the lymph nodes or other organs. And we don't actually understand a lot about what causes CLL, but we know that once it starts, that these cells can gradually accumulate in the body over time, whether in the blood or in the bone marrow or lymph nodes. And so that's sort of how the disease gets started. It's an interesting disease because it's one that we don't necessarily need to treat right away. In fact, most patients can go on a watch and wait or observation period, often for several years. But eventually, patients do typically need treatment. And as we'll discuss, there's a lot of exciting new treatments now for CLL. Sure. And that brings us along to... Really, what are the common signs and symptoms of CLL, and 
How do patients get diagnosed with CLL, especially since it's a chronic type of leukemia? Most patients actually have no symptoms when they're first diagnosed. The most common presentation these days is a patient who's seen their primary care doctor for an annual visit. They get a routine blood count or they're having some other medical issue and they have a routine blood count in that context. And they're noted to have an elevated white blood cell count and they might otherwise feel completely fine. But if that white blood cell count stays persistently high, then they should be evaluated for CLL. And the test that we use to make the diagnosis is called flow cytometry. And that's a blood test that looks at a pattern of different proteins on the surface of the cells that can define the disease. That's the most common way that patients are told that they have CLL. And it's often hard to believe because they feel so well otherwise, and they're told that they have leukemia. There are a smaller number of patients who develop enlarged lymph glands that can be the presenting symptom or other more significant symptoms like unintentional weight loss or night sweats, but that's not very common in terms of the initial presentation. If they're having signs and symptoms already, is that generally a sign that the CLL may have been ongoing and it's just kind of started to progress now to the point where they would have these signs and symptoms? Yeah, that's often the case. So often when I'm meeting a patient like that who's newly diagnosed and is already having symptoms and has a significant burden of disease, I can look back sometimes and see even years before that they might have had a very subtly elevated white blood cell count that maybe was not investigated further. And it's possible that this has been developing over the course of several years. I sometimes meet patients who haven't been staying up to date on their regular health visits with their primary physicians, and they may not have had a blood count in five or 10 years. And so then you don't know if maybe there was something brewing for a while. And then there's a very small subset of patients with CLL who have high-risk disease markers, and they may have really just developed the disease a few months before, but it can begin to progress fairly quickly, and they can develop symptoms even in that short time frame. And does this type of leukemia have a genetic predisposition? So yeah, one of the challenges with CLL is that we know that there is a genetic predisposition. That is very clear from sort of statistics and epidemiology. If you're a patient with CLL and you have first-degree relatives, typically we think of siblings or even children, their risk is about five to seven-fold greater than the general population of someday developing CLL themselves. One of the frustrating things for patients and for us is that we don't know what the genes are that lead to the development of CLL. This is an area of investigation at our center. Dr. Jennifer Brown at our center has for years been studying families with CLL and comparing them to CLL patients who have no family history to try to identify candidate genes. So it would be great if someday we could actually have a genetic test that we could look for this risk of CLL. And although there's been some candidates so far, nothing that's really been clearly a genetic cause of CLL. Now, what age group is most diagnosed with CLL? Is it true that it's more common with older patients versus younger? It is much more common as patients age. So the median age of diagnosis now is around 68, and it's a pretty wide bell curve there. So pretty common to see CLL diagnosed in patients in their 50s through 80s, really. It's a lot less common to see CLL diagnosed in patients in their 30s and 40s, although we certainly do see it. I tend to see a fair number of those patients who get referred in to see me. But statistically, it's much more common in elderly patients. And can children be diagnosed? There's really no pediatric equivalent that I'm aware of for CLL, so we don't tend to think of it as CLL in people less than the age of 18. There's case reports of some patients diagnosed as late teens or in their 20s, but this would be exceedingly rare. 
Now, speaking of younger patients, Dr. Davis, last year we interviewed your colleague, Dr. Karen Jacobson, about CAR T-cell therapy. In that episode, we had asked about an interview that you did with Cure Magazine in January of 2021 on the future of CAR-T for younger patients with CLL. In the article, you said that particularly for younger patients who had relapsed with prior treatments, there might be possibilities of using CAR-T as an alternative to allogeneic stem cell transplant. I would love to hear more about this. Has there been any progress made since that initial interview? So there has been some incremental progress made with CAR T-cells in CLL, although I would say it's been pretty slow and steady progress. Mm -hmm. Partly that's because we have patients in many cases doing very well on the current treatments, and so there aren't as many patients to accrue into the clinical trials of CAR T-cells. And part of that is due to what we were discussing before, that many CLL patients are older and have a lot of other medical issues and might not be able to endure the rigors of CAR-T. So it's a relatively small group of younger, fitter CLL patients that we're talking about here. We have continuing data that are evolving with CAR-T in CLL, which I think do look promising, but we don't yet have a CAR-T product that's approved for CLL. So not as much progress as we'd hoped, but certainly we're headed in that direction and we're hopeful that eventually we'll get a CAR-T product approved in CLL because I continue to think it would be very useful for younger, fitter patients who have high-risk disease and have had relapse. We have seen some really impressive responses in patients like that with CAR-T in the clinical trials. Would you say that would be the best candidate for CAR-T cell therapy is those younger, fitter, maybe healthier patients? Yeah, I don't mean to exclude older patients. We have a lot of patients who are older by numerical age, but are still fit and active. I think patients in that age group can also be good candidates for CAR-T. We've seen this in other lymphomas where patients in their 70s can go through CAR-T and tolerate it well. So I think that will be true for some CLL patients as well, but it will be a little bit more important to really select the patients who are best able to tolerate that type of approach. Sure. And speaking of CAR T-cell therapy, another article came out earlier this year in the American Journal of Managed Care that shared that a CLL patient was now considered cured 10 years after CAR T-cell treatment. Now, what are your thoughts on this? Because usually I don't really hear the word cure with CLL. We hesitate to use the word cure in CLL because historically, most of the treatments that we've had have not been able to cure the vast majority of patients. Now, that being said, we have patients who undergo allogeneic transplantation who go a decade or longer without any evidence of CLL coming back. And so those patients probably are cured. I'll note also that we've had patients who received chemoimmunotherapy with a regimen called FCR, which is three different drugs all put together. And we have patients 15 years out from six months of treatment with FCR who are still in complete remission. Some of those patients are also probably functionally cured, but these are probably really the minority of CLL patients. So I think what's particularly exciting about this patient with the long response to the CAR-T therapy is number one, there's still no CLL detectable, but number two, that there are still CAR T cells detectable in this patient 10 years later, speaking to the longevity of the treatment. And it suggests to me that even if CLL were lurking somewhere and we're trying to make a comeback, that this patient could potentially still be protected by virtue of having CAR T cells around still. And I think that really does raise the prospect of the curative potential of CAR T, at least for a subset of patients with CLL. And do you think that CAR-T in the future, when it is approved for CLL, will have more patients than folks that are put into a stem cell transplantation process? I guess the way I would see it playing out is that we would think about using CAR-T cell therapy first 
because although it does have some risks and side effects, it is far less risky than allogeneic transplantation or donor stem cell transplant. I think that some patients will probably enjoy very long remissions after CAR-T and will never need to move on to allotransplant. But for patients where the CLL does get worse after CAR-T, there will still be a role for donor stem cell transplant in that population. At that point, you're probably talking about a pretty small population of patients. Dr. Davids, for those impacted by CLL, what are the most current treatments? I've been hearing a lot about other therapies like monoclonal antibodies, BTK inhibitors. Are these newer therapies? And if so, could you please explain them further? So I'll give you the short version because I could spend a few hours with this question. Historically, we would use chemotherapy-based treatments for CLL, and that would be effective at putting the disease into remission for some patients for a period of time, but then the CLL would come back and it would be much harder to treat. It would not respond as well to chemotherapy. So already at this point, 25 years ago or so, the first monoclonal antibody was coming into the clinic. That's rituximab, which a lot of people probably have heard of, which is a more targeted therapy that goes after the B cells, including CLL cells. And so big innovation when I was first starting to do CLL in the late 2000s was the combination of rituximab with chemotherapy. And that's what we call chemoimmunotherapy. Mm-hmm. And although that was more effective than chemotherapy alone, it still led to this issue of relapses and being unable to treat patients after relapse very effectively. And so around 2010 or so is when this whole new wave of drugs started coming into clinical trials in the clinic starting with drugs targeting BTK or Bruton tyrosine kinase, and then next drugs targeting PI3 kinase, drugs like idelalisib and duvalisib. And these are basically drugs that interrupt what we call the survival pathways in the CLL cells. As I mentioned before, there aren't really characteristic mutations that define CLL like there are in some other diseases. So instead, what these drugs do is interrupt the pathways inside CLL cells that the cells rely on for their survival. CLL cells like to be in lymph nodes, and bone marrow, they tend to be happier in those environments. One of the interesting effects of these drugs is that they move the CLL cells out of the bone marrow and out of the lymph nodes and into the blood. And it turns out CLL cells are not as happy in the blood if they can't go back to the lymph nodes or the bone marrow. So they tend to be relatively slow in terms of how they actually kill the cells, but by moving them out of the lymph nodes, the lymph nodes can shrink fairly quickly. And then eventually these CLL cells will die off. So that was really an important innovation in terms of targeting that pathway. The other key agent to know about is venetoclax, which targets a completely different pathway in the CLL cells. It actually targets what's called the mitochondria, which you can think of as the powerhouse of the cell. It's like the factory that keeps the energy going in the cell. And so venetoclax very effectively can target this factory for energy and shut it down almost instantaneously. And so it's very effective at killing CLL cells. That drug has also now been approved and is widely used in this disease. So we have many different tools at our disposal. We have newer versions of some of these drugs, like the BTK inhibitor drugs that are very effective, but have fewer side effects than the earlier generation. There's a lot of options now for patients, but it also makes it confusing in terms of which ones to use first, what kind of combinations. A lot of the work we're doing now in clinical trials is trying to fine tune that. That was the short answer, but I'm happy to expand on any of that as you like. Thank you so much. I was thinking to myself, it gives us an excuse for a future episode to talk about that further. Sure. Talking about treatments, can you tell us a little bit more about emergent treatments? Is there anything on the horizon that you're really excited about and would love to share with our listeners? So probably the nearest things on the horizon are number one, combinations of BTK inhibitors and the BCL2 inhibitor, venetoclax. Mm -hmm. So we anticipate in the next few months, we'll likely see the first labeled indication for combination regimen of ibrutinib with venetoclax. 
And what's nice about that is that it's a time-limited regimen of about 15 months, and it's all oral medications, so patients don't need infusions. That'll be nice to have that as an option for certain patients. The other sort of area that I'm very excited about is a new class of BTK inhibitor drugs called non-covalent BTK inhibitors. Sort of a fancy way of saying it, it targets the BTK protein in a different way from the first generation of covalent inhibitors. One of the drugs being developed there is called pertubrutinib, and what we're finding is that pertubrutinib can be very effective even for patients who have previously been on a different BTK inhibitor like ibrutinib, and the CLL has gotten worse. They can go on pertubrutinib and do very well, and so it'll be nice to have that eventually approved for CLL patients to have another option that can be very effective. I would say as we look further out over the next few years, there's also some exciting new approaches in development. We've talked about CAR-T already. One of the limitations, though, of CAR-T cells is that it does take a while to manufacture them. So you have to get the cells from the patient, you have to ship them off somewhere, they have to be engineered and grown up and then shipped back and reinfused. Another technology that I'm excited about that's just getting into clinical trials in CLL and it's called bispecific antibodies. So you mentioned before rituximab, which is sort of a monospecific antibody or a monoclonal antibody. It targets one protein on the CLL cells. But with the bispecific antibodies, as you could guess, it does is it targets two different proteins. One of them is on the CLL cell, but the other protein targets on a different type of white blood cell called a T lymphocyte. You may be familiar with T lymphocytes. It's an important part of your immune system, Mm -hmm. normally there to help you fight off infections. But one of the things that T lymphocytes can also do is kill off tumor cells. The bispecific antibody targets the CLL cell and it targets the T cell and it brings the two in close proximity to each other and it allows the T cell to more easily kill the CLL cell. And that is a technology that we've just seen some early data for in other lymphomas, which looks very impressive. And it's what we'd call more of an off-the-shelf technology, meaning you don't have to go through that whole manufacturing process. You can just have the drug in the pharmacy and just give it to patients. Yet it still has this potential for immune responses, and we're hopeful that we'll see good responses with this approach in CLL as well, although we don't really have much data yet in CLL specifically. So are you just starting clinical trials for bispecifics then? Exactly. That's really just getting off the ground now, so it's really too early to say anything. Wow. That's just so exciting. There is so many different treatments, immunotherapies, CAR T-cell therapy. That is just so great. Yeah, it's been very exciting to be involved with this over the last decade plus because when I started focusing on CLL, which was around 2009, as I mentioned, really all we had was chemotherapy and then the rituximab. And uh, to see all these drugs come into clinic and even in the early days of clinical trials to really benefit some patients who really didn't have other treatment options and now to see how far they've moved and become the preferred therapies where we don't even really need to use chemotherapy-based approaches very much at all these days in CLL. It's actually pretty rare. It's been a while since I've prescribed CLL patients with chemotherapy, which is a pretty remarkable change in my career. That's great, especially moving away from chemotherapy. I'm sure all the patients listening are cheering right now to move away from chemotherapy. That's just so exciting. If you look back just 10 years and where we were with cancer research in general for blood cancers, for CLL, things have changed so much. What do you see 10 years from now where we could be at with CLL? Yeah, we have most of the tools that we need now in CLL. In addition to developing some of those exciting new technologies, it's also being very careful to study the existing therapies now to try to figure out, are there certain patients who might do better with like a continuous BTK inhibitor strategy like ibrutinib or acalabrutinib or xanabrutinib? Or are there patients who might benefit more from doing a combination approach with two or even three of these drugs for a short period of time 
and then getting off all therapy, going into remission and waiting until the disease comes back. So there's a study going on in Europe right now called CLL17, which is looking at that question. We're about to launch a study here in the US, a large phase three trial called MAGIC, which is comparing two different venetoclax-based regimens in the initial treatment for CLL, either venetoclax with the BTK inhibitor acalabrutinib or venetoclax with obinutuzumab. One of the exciting aspects that we think of the MAGIC study is that the therapy duration is guided by a test called MRD. So MRD, if you haven't heard of it, it stands for Minimal Residual Disease. MRD is a way to look for any molecular traces of CLL in the blood or the bone marrow. So we can take a blood sample. We might look under the microscope and not see any cells visually, but there might still be cells there that we can detect with MRD. So the idea in the MAGIC study and several other studies that are looking at this approach is to use the MRD test to guide the length of therapy, meaning that all patients we think probably will need about a year of this therapy. But if a patient does not have any detectable MRD at the end of that year, they've had a great response. And maybe we can spare them a second year of therapy, side effects, and eventually costs. Other patients at the end of the year might still have detectable MRD, and so we still have some work to do there, and maybe they need a second year of therapy to really eradicate that and then hopefully have a very long remission. I think this is really also the beginnings of trying to individualize therapy for patients with CLL. Right now, most of our regimens are either one year or two years for every patient, but every patient is different, and if we can try to really tailor the therapy duration for individual patients, then we can really both minimize toxicity and maximize the benefit of that treatment. Yeah, because really what we're looking for, right, is a not only long-term remission, but also quality of life. We want them to have a good quality of life as they're in remission until they progress in their disease again. That's exactly right. And that's why as soon as we can safely stop the treatment and know that we'll still have a, a great response, we want to do that to reduce the risks of side effects. But we also don't want to undertreat patients where you haven't gotten enough therapy and then the CLL comes back quickly because that's probably not going to be good for their quality of life either. So that's a lot of the work that we're doing now in these clinical trials is really trying to figure out, can we use MRD to effectively individualize therapy? And does that make a difference compared to the standard approach of just using one or two years for each patient? Now, Dr. Davids, I feel like I would be remiss if I did not bring up COVID for CLL patients, since a lot of CLL patients are on rituximab, which can decrease the response to the vaccine. Where are we at as far as CLL patients now and where we're at with COVID? It's been a really tough time for patients with CLL over the last two and a half years with the pandemic, not to minimize the effects of the pandemic on other people and other blood cancer patients, but this pandemic has hit patients with CLL particularly hard, not just because they receive rituximab, but actually because of the immune dysfunction that's inherent in the disease itself. In other words, we know that patients with CLL historically have been at much higher risks of infection of all types, viruses, bacteria, other types of infections, and that really came to the fore with COVID. I think there's a number of studies now that really confirm this, that even comparing patients with CLL to other patients with lymphoma who have all received rituximab, the effects on the immune system and the inability to fight COVID were unique to patients with CLL, who are really the most vulnerable of all of our patients, perhaps outside of the stem cell patients who are on immunosuppressive drugs. But patients on conventional therapy, our CLL patients have been at the most risk. And it was pretty dark days early on. Unfortunately, we lost patients. We had patients get very sick and debilitated from COVID. I think it was just such a remarkable story how the vaccines came so quickly. And there was a lot of doubt early on about how beneficial they were for patients with CLL. Certainly, we find that the ability to make antibodies to these vaccines is less with patients who have CLL compared to certainly the general population, but even to other blood cancer patients. 
But I would say a glimmer of hope in the last few months in particular is that despite the fact that patients may not always mount great antibody responses, I think the effects of the vaccine have been very clear in terms of benefiting patients with CLL. We still see a lot of infections in our patients, but the outcomes have been so much dramatically better. We don't tend to lose patients anymore. They don't even tend to wind up in the hospital very much these days. That speaks to the power of the vaccines, not just in creating antibodies, but also harnessing other aspects of the immune system. If you have CLL, you should ask your oncologist or your primary physician about Evisheld. Evisheld is a cocktail of two monoclonal antibodies against COVID, and it can be a very helpful adjunct to take in addition to the vaccines to provide additional protection. And if you've already had Evisheld, the FDA is actually now recommending if you're immune suppressed, which you are if you have CLL, that you get it every six months. Wow. And then the second thing is that if you are diagnosed with COVID-19 infection, we do have treatments now for COVID-19, which I think have also been quite helpful. And probably the best known is Paxlovid. And so treatments like that and other antibody infusions are most effective if they're used within the first five days or so of knowing that you're infected. So it's important if you test positive for COVID and you're having symptoms to contact your oncologist or primary care physician and try to get access to these treatments because they really do reduce the risk of severe infection, hospitalization, et cetera. Right. That's so good that there is some hope out there for CLL patients as we're still continuing to live through this pandemic, that they have things like Evisheld and Paxlovid to get them through, and maybe even a T-cell response if they're not developing the antibodies. So our last question for you, Dr. Davids, on our patient podcast homepage, we have a quote that says, after diagnosis comes hope. What would you say to CLL patients and their families to give them hope for the future? So what I tell my CLL patients now when I meet them for the first time in a consultation is that regardless of what their markers are, what their age is, my goal as their oncologist is to try to help them lead what otherwise be their normal lifespan and that that lifespan will not be shortened by CLL. For older patients now, that is a very achievable goal with the therapies we already have. If you're already in your 70s and you're diagnosed with CLL, it's very likely we'll be able to induce remissions of 15, 20 years and you'll live to a ripe old age. I think we still have a challenge ahead of us for our young patients who are diagnosed with CLL, particularly if they're very young, like in their 30s and 40s. We don't know yet what happens with the new drugs 30 or 40 years from now. So with those types of long time horizons, that's where I think the research is really crucial. CAR T-cells, bispecific antibodies, non-covalent BTK inhibitors, all these things on the horizon are going to be needed for our young patients to try to get them a normal lifespan as well. But I think that's the hope. That's the goal for all our patients with CLL. We're not quite there yet for everyone, but with all the continued research that we're doing, I do think that we'll get there. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Davids, for joining us today and telling us all about CLL and where we're at and where we're going in the next several years with all these really exciting treatments. We really appreciate you joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone listening today. The Bloodline with LLS is one part of the mission of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to improve the quality of lives of patients and their families. To help us continue to provide the engaging content for all people affected by cancer, we would like to ask you to complete a brief survey that can be found in the show notes or at thebloodline.org. This is your opportunity to provide feedback and suggested topics that will help so many people. We would also like to know about you and how we can serve you better. The survey is completely anonymous and no identifying information will be taken. In addition to the survey, we are excited to announce our brand new subscriber lounge where you can gain access to exclusive content, discuss episodes with other listeners, make suggestions for future topics, 
or share your story to potentially be featured as a future guest. Join for free today at thebloodline.org forward slash subscriber lounge. We hope this podcast helped you today. Stay tuned for more information on the resources that LLS has for you or your loved ones who have been affected by cancer. Have you or a loved one been affected by a blood cancer? LLS has many resources available to you. Financial support, peer-to-peer connection, nutritional support, and more. We encourage patients and caregivers to contact our information specialists at 1-800-955-4572 or go to lls.org forward slash patient support. You can also find information about CLL at lls.org forward slash leukemia. All of these links will be found in the show notes or at thebloodline.org. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Bloodline so you don't miss an episode. We look forward to having you join us next time. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.